Hello, I'm Edmund Daw, and welcome to Episode 7. I want to remind you that you can find a link to a podcast outline in the podcast description on the Buzzsprout site. Recently, I was reading about the do-it-yourself movement and how it has really taken off during the pandemic. People are doing all sorts of home repair and renovation projects, and business in the building supply industry is booming. Well, our piano students have many do-it-yourself days between lessons. That's the nature of what they do as students. That's how it works. They have a weekly lesson and then they go home to prepare for the next one. One of the best books I have read on this topic and I used in my piano pedagogy courses for many years is by Australian pianist and teacher Philip Johnston. The book is entitled The Practice Revolution getting great results from the six days between lessons. I feel this book should be in the top 10 list of essential reading for all piano teachers. Johnston offers numerous useful and creative suggestions and focuses on helping the teacher guide different types of learners, students who develop different kinds of practice habits and how best to address them. But let me start by reading a short section from the introduction. Johnston states, and I quote, Remember, if practicing fails, then lessons fail. Why? It's simple arithmetic. You see your students for one lesson each week. That half-hour lesson represents 0.3% of the student's time in those seven days. 0.3%, and that's rounding up. A mere 30 minutes in a week containing 168 hours. This means that for a staggering 99.7% of the time, music students are responsible for their own destiny. It's no surprise then that great leaps forward don't happen during lessons. They're most likely to happen between lessons because that's where your students are almost all the time. This book is dedicated to helping your students get the most out of the time when you can't be with them so they can get the most out of the time when you can. End of quote. Well, we can't be with our students all the time. But I love finding quirky bits of information about piano teaching. And I found one tidbit I want to share with you on this very topic. Many of you know of the composer Francois Couperin and have probably taught some of his pieces that were originally written for harpsichord. Couperin was a renowned French composer who lived from 1668 to 1733. He was from a family of prominent musicians and was given the nickname Couperin the Great to distinguish him from other members of the Couperin family. At the age of 24, he became the most prominent musician in the court of Louis XIV. Part of Couperin's duties would include some teaching, just a very small number of children from the royal family. Couperin published an important treatise entitled The Art of Playing the Harpsichord, and it was published in 1716, and in it he stated, and I quote, It is better during the first lessons given to children not to recommend practice in the absence of the person who teaches them. Little people are too inattentive to subject themselves to holding their hands in the position which is stipulated for them. For myself, in the beginning lessons for children, as a precaution, I carry the key to the instrument on which I teach them, so that in my absence they cannot undo in an instant that which I taught them so carefully in three quarters of an hour." End of quote. 
So Couperin kept the instrument locked, and students could only practice in his presence. I think if he had a studio of 20 or 30 students, he would have a different philosophy and approach. But I wanted to share that with you. So as I said, obviously we can't be with our students when they practice. And furthermore, the vast majority of our students are not destined for careers as concert pianists, whereby they are naturally drawn to the instrument and practice for hours and hours. In his book, The Art of Piano Playing, Heinrich Neuhaus liked to talk about his student, his prize student, Sviatoslav Richter. Let me read you a short excerpt. Neuhaus says, When Sviatoslav Richter played me Prokofiev's Ninth Sonata, dedicated to him for the first time, I could not help noticing that one very difficult, polyphonic, and very lively bit in the third movement, some ten bars, not more, came off particularly well. He said to me, I practiced this bit without interruption for two hours. This is the right method, for it gives splendid results. The pianist works at attaining the best possible result without putting it off till some later occasion. End of quote. So not many of us have taught students the caliber of Sviatoslav Richter. But then Neuhaus goes on to talk about another student, and I think this example is much more familiar to all of us. And he says, once, in talking with a pupil, a girl who worked rather languidly and wasted a lot of time, I used the following metaphor from daily life. Suppose you want to boil a kettle of water. You have to put the kettle on the stove and not take it off until it boils. But you bring the water up to a temperature of about 40 or 50 degrees Celsius, then turn off the flame. Do something else. Then you remember the kettle, the water having cooled in the meanwhile. You begin all over again and so on several times until you are so fed up with the whole thing that you wait the time required for the kettle to boil. In this way, you lose a lot of time and lower considerably your working vitality. End of quote. So with our students, how do we set them up for a productive week to ensure that the kettle is boiled, if we were to use Neuhaus's analogy? So going back to Philip Johnson's book where he states, if practicing fails then lessons fail. I agree totally that when a student has a week with very little or no productive practicing, it makes the lesson and the teaching challenging and often frustrating. And once again, Johnson's book is an excellent resource for teaching suggestions. But in this episode, I want to talk about the flip side of that statement, the idea that the amount of productive practice that happens during the week will be determined to a very large extent by what happens in the lesson. So if I were to use some of Philip Johnston's words, I would say, if the lesson fails, the practicing fails. When talking about our students having productive and successful practice days in the days between lessons, the do-it-yourself days, there are certain basic conditions, of course, that must be in place when students start taking piano lessons. And these are pretty obvious. Does the child have ready access to a piano or a quality, touch-sensitive, full-size digital keyboard? Where is the instrument located in the home? Is it in a place where the student can concentrate without a lot of distractions? What's the best time of day for the child and in the family schedule to practice? Can this be accommodated? Then, of course, there's the tricky issue of whether or not one of the parents has enough musical background to help with practicing at home. I've had different experiences with this. In some instances, it has worked fine. The parent-child relationship was great and the parent knew how much assistance to offer the child and when to offer it or not. In other cases, 
parental involvement has been a hindrance. And I can think of at least two instances where I've had to have a private conversation with a parent and ask the parent to please back off and no longer be involved in the weekly practice. So these are some basic considerations. In terms of teaching, of course, most teachers see their students once per week. So there is a lot of do-it-yourself time between the lessons for the student. However, some teachers do have a different setup. There are alternatives. For example, the teacher I had during my high school years had a studio policy whereby you had two 30-minute lessons per week. My lessons were on Monday and Thursday evenings. I remember when I started studying with him, my parents asked if he would consider one 60-minute lesson per week because we lived a long distance from town and the drive, especially in the winter, could be quite difficult. He simply would not change his policy, and looking back, I fully understand why seeing his students twice per week was a very good pedagogical model. There was less time between lessons and more guidance from the teacher each week. I also want to mention that when I started studying with him, I was 14 years old, and I signed a practice contract. My parents and I arrived for my first lesson. He explained a studio policy, and he handed me a contract to sign in front of my parents where I committed to regular daily practice. Some other things to consider to ensure productive weeks. Is the music motivational? Does the student love the piece? The student has to be excited about the music to do the necessary work to succeed. When you introduce the music to the student, did you create an artistic concept, an artistic image, a master plan with the student that you created together so that the student feels a sense of ownership? And that to me doesn't matter if it's a beginner piece about teddy bears or one of the Chopin blogs. Do you revisit that plan regularly, refer to it, remind the student about it? That plan is your roadmap, it's your guide to all preparation. It's your ultimate goal, and all of the practicing should point directly to the artistic image or the master plan. Ensure that students are spending time regularly listening to the piece, internalizing the sound of it, getting a good, good concept of the overall shape of the piece. And if you have a lot of students, this can be very demanding. This student-teacher relationship, when the student arrives, does the student feel that the next 30 minutes are the most important 30 minutes in your week. And so we arrive at the piano lesson. What are the characteristics of a good piano lesson? Well, Francis Clark once said, and I quote, teaching is not telling. Teaching is creating a situation in which students experience what you want them to learn. Let me say that again. Teaching is not telling. Teaching is creating a situation in which students experience what you want them to learn. So how do we define a good piano lesson from a teaching perspective? Well, I believe that a good lesson is when something happens, regardless of the age or the ability of the student, where the student improves. But most importantly, the student can hear it, feel it, and is excited about it. The student leaves knowing and feeling that something has been accomplished and has the tools to accomplish even more. I often think of the 17 years I spent teaching at Mount Allison University in New Brunswick. I was privileged to work with piano students who came to university from different backgrounds, different levels of talent, and had different career aspirations. The Department of Music is in a building built in the mid-1960s and to this day is still a beautiful facility. 
My studio was located at the end of a hallway, and the way that the heating and ventilation system had been installed, I could hear the piano in a practice room above me on the second floor. It was distant, but still fairly clear. That practice room also happened to be a favorite one for the piano majors because it had a very nice grand piano in it. Nothing pleased me more after a lesson than to hear the student either immediately after the lesson or later that day upstairs in that practice room practicing what we had worked on in the lesson that day. Whenever I heard that, I felt good. I also believe that for mainstream piano teaching and in the modern era, motivation is a very important factor in keeping our students working and progressing. My approach has always been that once a student plays, I try to find something positive to say about the progress that has been made since the last lesson. I then like to look for quick fixes, quick wins, things we can deal with very quickly to motivate the student even more and encourage them, then settle into the more challenging passages. And after working on the difficult bits, if we move on to other repertoire, technique, ear training, whatever it is, before the student leaves, make sure I do a recap or a review of the challenging stuff we did, what we accomplished in the lesson, and that the student understands what needs to be done and how to do it for next week. So when our students leave the lesson, are they in an excited state where they want to go straight to the piano when they get home and try the things you've worked on? That's a tall order for every teacher, every student, and every lesson. But as I've said so many times in previous episodes, piano teaching is demanding work. Another area that's very important are the teacher's demonstrations, explanations, and suggestions clear to the student. Remember in episode one, I talked about priorities and perspectives, and I, I talked about how important it is to understand the student's perspective. We might say something that might seem perfectly clear to us, but is it to the student? I'm sure we've all had the experience where it seems at the lesson that the student gets it, only to return the following week and demonstrates very clearly that that was not the case. So if we go back to Francis Clark's statement, how do we create the situation in which the student experiences what we want them to learn? So that when they leave their daily practice sessions at home, consist of applying what they already know to the new material being studied. Making sure that the student leaves the lesson with a clear sense of the specific practice goals and equally clear practice guidelines and techniques. So when we're working with the students in that very short period of time every week, it's so important that our verbal explanations, our visual and oral demonstrations have to be clear, systematic, and hopefully lead to student progress. And this will certainly help them in the days ahead. Another book that I would highly recommend is The Well-Tempered Keyboard Teacher. It was the main textbook in my course for many years, and it offers excellent information on many pedagogical issues. In this episode today, there's one particular section in the first edition of the book that I want to highlight. And it's a section on how to teach something that piano students have to do many, many times, and it, is, it has to do with motor skills because pianists have to learn, develop, and refine many, many motor skills. As I said in earlier episodes, pianists are sometimes called elite athletes of the small muscles. This particular section, which is in the PDF outline, 
particular section from the Well-Tempered Keyboard Teacher, is an excellent summary and guide for systematic, clear instruction when teaching a motor skill. So if we were to use an example, for example, that the, the student is going to learn for the first time a two-note slur. It's in the right hand, starting on the A above middle C, going down a third to the F above middle C, A with the fourth finger, F with the second finger. Two-note slur, quarter notes. So of course we know that a two-note slur it's a drop lift motion and the musical effect is that there's a softer sound on the second note and the sound is so important because sound is the basic raw material we work with everything comes back to how it sounds I've also quoted the famous piano teacher Cecile Genhart in the past who said never believe anything until you hear how it sounds well in the well-tempered keyboard teacher to quote it says all motor skills depend on precision and timing of muscular movement. And that precision and timing takes a lot of work and a lot of practice and very clear explanations from the teacher while the student's observing and very clear rehearsal on the part of the student. So in the book they talk about from the learner's perspective the three phases. There's, a, there's an early phase where the learner gets the general idea of the skill to be acquired. So it's a two-note slur. And we'll talk about the teacher's role in this in a, in a minute. Then there's the intermediate phase where the learner must apply previously learned motor skills and combine them and to learn the new skill. So they apply to a certain extent what they already know. So in this case, the child would be able to play the fourth finger on A, the second finger on F. The issue with the slur is the drop lift motion and that's probably the new skill that's going to have to be worked on and developed and refined. So that's the intermediate phase and then the final phase is that the learner is able to perform this new motor skill without thinking. It becomes automatic. You want them to get to the point where they see the two note slur on the, on the page in the notation and they do it. They physically do it. What I like about this textbook is how it explains the interaction between the teacher and the learner and it's very methodical and very clear and very systematic and how the interaction follows a pattern that the amount of direction and guidance from the teacher decreases from the early through the final phase and at the same time the learner's reliance on their own knowledge and experience and understanding increases to the point where they become independent. So, in terms of the teacher-learner interaction, the first phase is called the instructional phase. So the teacher provides a verbal instruction combined with visual and oral demonstration. So you explain it's called a two-note slur, or it's a slur, and then describe how you drop into the first one and lift off the second one so that the student is observing you and absorbing what you're doing, noticing what you're doing visually, hearing the result musically, and then in the second phase, the association phase, that's when the student starts to practice to attempt the skill, trying to improve the precision and timing. I would strongly suggest with something like this, doing it away from the piano or putting the lid down on the piano, taking away the complications of playing the notes, but giving the student the opportunity to practice the gesture, the choreography of going into the first note and lifting off the second note. So the feedback from you as the teacher, you observe and you offer feedback and hopefully and gradually the feedback will become less necessary and ultimately the student develops the comfort with this skill and is able to do it.
and then eventually the direction support of the teacher are no longer necessary so that you get to the point where you know if the student doesn't play the two note slur when they're playing their piece you remind them you say you notice these slurs and then they just do it they just forgotten to do it but they no longer have to think what to do they don't have to think about oh yeah fourth finger into a and now i have to get ready to lift i have my second finger right the drop lift motion they don't have to think about those individual movements anymore so i put that in the outline because i think if you take a two-note slur as a simple example, it's a very good example in the text of a systematic explanation and instruction that can be used on many occasions when teaching a specific motor skill. Another area and another big concern of mine about student practice is the amount of time wasted on mindless, repetitive practice. Students often spend a lot of time trying to accomplish something that can be done in far less time through more efficient, careful, engaged practice. I know this because during my student years, I was guilty of mindless repetition on so many occasions. I often say that an effective, successful practice session depends on what you notice during the practice. I think that's one of the most important questions we can ask our students in a lesson when they try something is, what did you notice? So the student might say, well, I don't think my staccato was short enough. And so you say, well, show me how short you would like it. Okay, now try that right hand part again. Was it better this time? Maybe you have to adjust, maybe you won't. But the important thing is that we think about it before we repeat it. We think and analyze before repeating. Know why you're repeating and focus on accomplishing that task. I think teaching students, even very young students, to do that type of critical listening and analysis is so important. You're helping, as Francis Clark said, to set up the situation where you're creating that situation in which students experience what you want them to learn. That interaction is very, very important. It's so easy to fall into the trap of just telling our students what to do. I remember decades ago when I was completing my undergraduate music degree, I was also doing an education degree. And in a general education course, we had an assignment. We had to teach a 15-minute lesson to the class by asking questions only. Now, in this class, it was a general education course, so there were non-music students, but we had to choose a topic and we had to use questions to guide our fellow students to an understanding of the material or the concept we were trying to teach. So if you asked a question and one of the students in the class made a response, you had to take that response to lead to another question. It was very difficult, but it was an exercise to get us out of the, out of the habit or the normal tendency to just simply tell students everything. Guiding our students through good practice strategy should be a vital part of each lesson. How to work specific passages, with you as a teacher providing commentary and helping to refine each practice attempt. Another way to encourage and develop the skill in students, the skill of noticing during a practice session, is through role reversal, where the teacher practices and the student becomes the teacher and observes and provides commentary. This can be particularly effective, motivational, and fun with younger students. 
So the teacher practices whatever's being worked on or discussed and the student observes and comments. The teacher can exaggerate to make a point or you can deliberately play wrong notes, whatever. It's a good way to engage the student and help develop their diagnostic, listening and observational and also communication skills. But it's very important that what is required in the weekly practice is explained, demonstrated and tried in the lesson. In her very recent book, The Complete Pianist, Penelope Roskell states, and I quote, they say that practice makes perfect, but what sort of practice? Poor practice gives a poor result. Good practice ensures fast progress, strong motivation, musical satisfaction, and a healthy, sustainable technique which will stand you in good stead for years to come. The earlier you instill good practice methods, the better. End of quote. It's also a good idea to establish a practice plan and to set goals. In her book, Practical Piano Pedagogy, Dr. Martha Baker Jordan devotes an entire section to creating a practice plan for the next four weeks with weekly goals and instructions. This is beneficial for both students and parents, especially parents of younger students. The practice plan assists the students in breaking each piece down into manageable smaller units each week with suggested practice techniques. And sometimes with younger students, Baker Jordan says that practice achievement awards can be an incentive to students who complete the weekly practice tasks. Again, the important thing to remember is that the things they need to do at home should be explained and tested in the lesson. At home, as I've said, they apply what they know to the new material being studied. So what's the ultimate goal? What do I want for students during their do-it-yourself days? I want them to work hard and work smart in the days between lessons. I want them to know that I have high expectations, but I also know that they can achieve those expectations. That's why I'm here to help motivate, to show them, to work together with them for continued progress. I hope they leave their lesson inspired and energized, having experienced improvement with the practice tools and the understanding to work on what needs to be done and to see, feel, and hear progress in the days between lessons. I want them to be excited about getting back to the piano to continue on the journey of progress and artistic development and most of all, I want students to look forward to the next lesson. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you'd like to support the podcast, at the very bottom of the PDF outline, there's a link, and also on the Buzzsprout site in the top right corner. Thank you again, and best wishes for continued success in your teaching careers. Bye for now.